Welcome to Seed Time Living. This is where we help you transform your financial life using timeless biblical principles. I'm your host, Bob Lodick, and I'm so glad to have you here today. So if you've been following along in this book study, we are going through this book, Five Wealth Secrets 96% of Us Don't Know by Craig Hale. Mm -hmm. And hopefully some of you have got it by now. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of chat about this. We're on chapter, we're not on chapter four, we're on secret number four. Yeah. Do you want to do a quick recap of the secrets? Uh, yeah, I think we can do that. So yeah, we'll kind of fly through these real quick. Well, actually, we'll just recap in case you haven't been with us on any of this. So this <laughs> idea of the 96%, it's off this quote from Robert Kiyosaki. If 100 people were given $10,000 today, what results would we see one year from now? And 96% of people would have nothing or they would only have a little over $10,000, maybe $10,000 and 200 or something. But the 4%, would have between twenty thousand and a million dollars, and I so, would like to be in that group. Yeah, the point is, is these are the things that the four percent do that the ninety six percent don't, and that's what this is all about. So, first one is using jars, mm-hmm. and basically, this is budgeting, mm-hmm. like in its most basic form. He's right. talking about the four percent allocate what's most important to them, and they separate it out. You know, one of them being tithing, one of them being investing, one of them being saving for emergencies or whatever. And so that's kind of the main idea behind that. The second secret was they focus on vision rather than the provision. Mm-hmm. And so the idea behind this, and I thought this was really good. So definitely go back and watch the second one because there's mm-hmm. so much great meat in that. But the idea there is to focus on what the thing is that's in front of you, what vision has God given you, rather than the fact that I don't have enough money to do it. Right. And that was a, a really powerful idea that convicted me of some stuff that where I'm like, well, I want to do that, but I don't have the resources. In and, other words, God will provide. Yeah. You just need to focus on what? It's obedience, really. Yeah. And just trusting him and walking in faith. Right. He gave a lot of just biblical examples of this where we just see people throughout the Bible not having the provision visibly in front of them, but they have the vision that God gave them. And so super, so super start powerful. moving forward and the provision shows up, right? Uh, number three is investing in Multi- things that multiply. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the idea of not putting all your money into things that go down in value, but focusing on putting your money in things that go up in value. Mm-hmm. So this is something I've talked about for years and it was a kind of game changer for our finances. So mm-hmm. it's a really big deal. And so number five, like we skipped over chapter four, which is another part of the third principle, but it's kind of specifically for business owners who are hiring people. And so I just figured you can read it on your own if that's relevant to you. Mm -hmm. But tonight we're talking about the fourth secret, which is to anticipate economic cycles. Really interesting, huh? Really interesting in light of the current kind of situation Situation, that we're in right right now. So he said the fourth secret that the wealthy 4% practice and teach their children to understand is to anticipate and prepare for economic cycles. While the 96% tend to think that the economy is linear and will continue to be in the future, like the way it always has been in the past, the 4% understand that the economy expands and contracts mm-hmm. in different cycles. And that's just the way it works. Yeah. It's and a what cyclical I, thing. Like this idea right here of everyone thinks it's linear. I think... It is easy, like that is just human nature to me. It's like if I am having a harder day, like having a cold, it's easy to think I will always feel like this. (laughs) Like, have you ever done that where you're like, I have a cold, it's never going to go away. (laughs) Or, you know, 
little kids. It's hard to think longer term. Right. Hard yeah. to think. Like you have little kids and you're kind of in the weeds of diapers and stuff like that. And it's we know really nothing difficult. about this. <laughs> <laughs> this is our season right it's now. And it's relevant. really yeah. difficult to Ugh. see past that and what our life is going to look like when we don't have that anymore. You know, and some of the freedom that will come with that. And every time we think about it, we're like, there's going to be a point where the kids <laughs> can stay by like? themselves. There's going to be a point where we right. can have five minutes to have a conversation without being interrupted. Like, is that possible? Yeah. We're thinking about we're def- Yeah, but it's really easy to think. I mean, even when coronavirus, I would say about a month in, I was like, it's always going to be like this. And even now, there's part know. of me... That's like, is this always going to happen? Are we always going to have to wear masks? Are we like (laughs) some of those things that are still floating around? I really am like, when is this going to end? Or is it going to end? Is this just a new normal? Yeah. So I think this idea of realizing that not everything lasts forever, it's really tough to get through. Both good and bad. Yeah, it's tough to get through your brain. But yeah, we all need to know this about everything, but especially in the economy is what yeah. we're talking about tonight. So he said the 4% have learned how to prosper equally in times of economic expansion, recession, or even depression. And I think this is interesting. And so I'm going to read you in this other section here. This is from Leviticus 25, which is a really interesting chapter because like some of you know, I took a year long sabbatical and it was based on that chapter in the Bible. This is another part of it. So in Leviticus 25, God commanded Israel to declare a year of jubilee every 50 years. Some of you might have heard of this, might Mm -hmm. be familiar with it. But during this year, three things are supposed to occur. So the first one is that all debt was to be canceled or forgiven. All slaves were to go free and all property was given back to its original owner. And this is what God designed to happen, what he instructed Israel to do every 50 years. And so this is an interesting thing he said. He says, whenever credit was made available in any society, human nature dictates with 100% certainty that over a few decades, people will borrow more money than it is possible to pay back. So interesting. (laughs) And it's like, we have found ourselves in that. So as a result, over about five decades, the economy in that society will take on an unsustainable amount of debt. And there's a need to eliminate that debt. This is why God commanded Israel to declare a national debt purge every 50 years called Jubilee. Jubilee is a debt reset button, as it were. Like some of you know who are following along with this book, it's kind of tied through a story and that's kind of how it goes. But so the person he's talking to here says, so what happens if an economy like ours has no Jubilee and no debt purge mechanism? And that's where we live. Like we don't live in a society that's following this. I mean, I think all of us would be... (laughs) We have student loans and everything else would be like, right. yes, that Thrilled. would be amazing. Right. But unfortunately, we don't live in that, mm-hmm. that society. So he responds, he said, it seems that if an economy has no planned jubilee, then that economy will have what I think of as an unplanned jubilee. Interesting, huh? And this is essentially market crashes, the Great Depression, things like that, where things just shift as a result of basically not obeying God's command. So he gives the uh, example of foreclosing on your home loan, right? When was that? 2008 when yeah. the market crashed yeah. and there were just a ton of foreclosures. Yep. I mean, that's we his example, right? We had a massive right? real estate bubble that burst then, yeah. We're we looking at 2058 for the next one or 2078 for the next one. <laughs> well, that's says? that's the interesting thing. It's not, it's not based on 50 years. That's what God instructed. But realistically, when these things happen, it's not that predictable you know it's not right. down to every 50 years <laughs> but uh 
Because that's the other thing is that we have the Federal Reserve and all these pieces of our government kind of playing a role in this trying to prevent the crash. I think the question is, how long can it last? It just astounds me when I hear stuff like this. It's like laws, like the law of sowing and reaping type of thing that God just set in motion that man is trying so hard to prevent (laughs) that it just doesn't matter. Well, yeah, and that goes back to this Leviticus 25 thing. Our whole year-long sabbatical was based off this idea where God said, I want you to plant stuff in the ground for six years, but then on the seventh year, I want you to let the land rest. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do this, and we're going to kind of build up the nutrients in the soil so that Mm -hmm. you can have abundance for the next six years. If you never let the land rest, like your plants are all going to be depleted, and you're just not going to get good harvests. And this is like that point exactly. Like farmers now know that that's what you need to do. You need to at least have crop rotation, but really the land needs to rest. But, you know, most agricultural kind of big uh, corporate conglomerate kind of uh, farmers, like they're not doing that. They're just trying to add extra more chemicals or more something else so that they don't have to take that rest. But (laughs) reality is that everybody knows if you just let the land rest, like it's going to be really fertile soil. It's going to grow better. But. Yeah, we just want to fight that. So he goes on here. The primary difference between biblical jubilee and a modern depression is that the biblical jubilee was meant to be fair and just for all because the timing was planned. It was declared and it was known Mm. to all. So this is really interesting. Yeah. He said business deals could be structured according to the number of years left until jubilee. A modern deflationary depression, on the other hand, is not planned and catches many by surprise. And as a result... Many people are really harmed financially, which is, you know, so many people losing their houses, bankruptcies and all this stuff because it's unplanned and and people aren't ready for it. Right. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if he talks in this or if you want to go into this, like, what does this mean for us? Yeah. If there is an unplanned (laughs) jubilee coming... How do we think about that? How should we be thinking about yeah. that? And he talks a little bit about that. I mean, okay. and I have some ideas as well, but. Yeah, I think what would be helpful is for you to just explain like how you're thinking about this. Yeah. What questions are you starting to ask after reading this? Yeah. And I'll just kind of say this too. So I don't know when this book was written, but he's talking, he's showing charts in here. He's more or less predicting look it up. predicting the 2008, 2008. crash mm-hmm. because the last date he has in here is in 2007 and he says that you know it's coming soon <laughs> which is pretty hilarious because he pretty much called it um so by copy- 2008 copyright is 2012 yeah so i'm thinking that that was an updated thing but mm-hmm. either way and so i just thought that was really well that's interesting just that yeah possibly that's what happened that he actually did kind of call this but I think with a lot of these things, the writing is on the wall, and if we're aware, we'll see that and we'll adjust. And and in my opinion, where we are right now, like I feel like we're in that situation again where the writing is on the wall. There are just a lot of really smart, you know, economists and um, people who are paying attention who are saying that we're just in a situation that it's kind of inevitable. There's just too many negative things happening through the whole coronavirus thing, too high of unemployment. Too many things going on that it just doesn't make sense that our stock market has rebounded the way it has. It's inconsistent. And as a result, yeah, I'm pretty, you might have seen one of another video I did about just kind of me just thinking that, yeah, I think there's a crash that is inevitable. So getting to, I guess, the response to this, like I'll talk about what he's doing and, or what he recommends doing and um, we can kind of go from there. 
So he's talking about in the 30s during the Great Depression. He said the, the ones who became millionaires in the 30s were indeed the financially meek, who were out of debt, had extra cash, and thus were on the correct side of the wealth transfer equation, which he calls it. And so the financially meek, like he talked about in one of the previous kind of secrets here, it's those people who basically have power, but they have it under control. So they're not spending 100% of what they earn. They are saving some, and they're just kind of have more power than what they're doing. That's the definition of meek. And so just not living out on margin, but living within your means and being in that position. And so like he's talking about being able to have some extra cash to invest during these depressions or recessions that might come down the line. And then they refer to the verse, the meek will inherit the land. Yeah. And, the- and I don't know what, what translation that is, because I've always heard the earth, but the land, that's interesting. I mean, yeah. That really makes it sound interesting. So what should we do to prepare for this next economic season? So one of the things that he mentioned I thought was interesting, and just so we're clear, this isn't a prescriptive thing. I'm not telling you what to do. I don't think he's even telling you what to do like right now. Because part of the, the most difficult challenge of recognizing these cycles is that no one really knows when right. things are going to go up or down. It's like it becomes clear that something's going to happen, and it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later. And that's where I think we are right now. But no one knows when that's going to happen, you know. So it could be in five months. It could be in five years. That's what's tricky about it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in this particular instance, as he was writing this, he was kind of saying he's expecting something within the next year, blah, blah, blah. He said, if you consider your house a home and want to remain in it for at least a couple decades and you don't mind watching its value sharply decline, then keep it. But if you consider your house just an investment and you want to preserve your equity value, then I suggest you sell it now while the housing market is still strong. And if you do, then rent for four to five years and plan a repurchase similar house for a small percentage of what you sold it for now. So that's pretty bold. That's a pretty bold um, move, I think, for a lot of us. To me, it almost feels like they've got their crystal ball out and they're like, yeah, I'm going to sell my house. But that's my beef with this a little bit because it's... You don't know when it's going to happen. And, and like I said, we one of the things that we've done a little bit is we've sold off some of our stocks because, like I said, I'm just more confident that something is going to happen with the market and it's going to come back down than I am that it's just going to continue like this for the next 10 years. So, so I want to be a little more cash strong to be able to buy in when things really come down a little bit. So, and so that's the same thing he's saying here, just with real estate. Right. When did you sell... Uh, we sold some stuff a couple, probably two or three months ago or something. So you basically were like, I'm trying to sell high and, and not, even, not even high more. as much. I mean, cause a lot of things dropped, you know, in, a I guess it was March. Dropped. Yeah. So it wasn't really selling high. It was the market did not come down as much as I anticipated. And I just think it might come down more. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where we are with that. So that's one thing that he's talking about. My beef a little bit with it is just kind of, this is a big move to make when we don't know when well, yeah. this is going to happen. And so that's what's tricky about it. But I, I think it makes sense. It's just a big, bold move. Mm-hmm. Um, two other things he said, he talked about investing in basically shorting the market a little bit. So I'll just read what he said here. Most people only know how to invest their money in funds and financial instruments that increase in value as the markets or economy go up. However, few people seem to know that you can invest in financial instruments <laughs> that are leveraged to move the opposite of the stock market or the real estate market. So money can be made when the market moves in either direction, up or down. And that is another one that I am just really cautious about 
because when you're shorting something, there's a lot of danger there in that there's no limit. For example, when you buy a stock, you can only lose the amount that you invest into it. You buy a stock, $100, one share, okay? So you put in $100, you can only lose $100. If the company goes to zero, you lost $100, okay? Now, if you short that stock, there's no limit to how much it can go up. So if you short it and it goes up to 200, you're following my logic here. But the point is there's no limit to how high it can go. And so if you watch like Tesla, a lot of people have been shorting Tesla for years because they just thought there's Elon's not going to make it. He's not going to be able to pull through over and over and over again. And yet the stock price keeps going up and up and up. And so many people have lost so much money because they're shorting the stock. So point is, that's just a really dangerous approach. If you know what you're doing, great, go for it. But that's one thing he was recommending. <laughs> and then the other thing, which I do agree with here, he said, I've read that historically deflationary depression seasons are incubators for new ideas and technology. Business is not expanding and people begin spending more time and energy in technology development. So the next few years may be a time to look at investing in the development of new disruptive technologies. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Like so many great businesses have been birthed in recessions and in the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And it just is a time when all kinds of ideas just start percolating up. Yeah, I think that's definitely something to consider during this time. But I think the most important thing for most people is to get yourself in a place where you minimize the amount of debt you have and start building an emergency fund, start building some savings so you have some cash on hand, so you have options and things that you can do. But being in a position where you're strapped with debt is just not, it's never something you want. But in a season of that, when the market's crashing, you just really don't want to be in that position. So that's the main thing that I think we're doing is really mm -hmm. trying to build up our savings and get in a place where we're prepared to take advantage of whatever opportunities might present themselves in that situation. So this is not like the most fun thing to talk about, <laughs> you know, but I think this is a really important thing. I agree with him that this is something that the 4% think about, and it's really important to think cyclically because like you mentioned at the beginning, so many of us just want to think, all right, well... I'm going to put some money in the stock market. It's just going to keep going up and up or even real yeah. estate. Real estate always makes money. Like our house is always going to go up in value. And that's just not the way it always works. Mm -hmm. To be aware of that is just a really important thing. Yeah. Um, we've got definitely some questions. Lisa's saying, so the worst is yet to come. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I, I, yep. I have no idea, <laughs> but I mean, I've just read article after article and article from people who are way smarter than me who... It doesn't make sense the way that the stock market has responded to the situation that's actually happening. It's just completely illog illogical. I think there's a lot of reason to think that there's more to come from this. Like we're just way overextended. We just took on another $3 trillion of debt. There's some new philosophies about the economy that basically suggest that the government can just print money as much as they want. And that there's no harm anymore and that it, the rules have changed. I do not understand that. I do not understand <laughs> that at all. It makes absolutely no sense to me. But So this says from top to bottom, the deflationary economic decline usually lasts four to five years. It so never he was goes looking straight at, down. Yeah, he was looking at the 30s. I think he was looking at uh, something that happened in like the 1850s. When you have like a depression like this, it's not like a come right back down and jump right back up which is what we've had in the last two months, pretty much. Like the market dropped and then it just came right back up. So yeah, this says it zigzagged down over four years. There were significant rallies back up during that time. 
And so they're talking about, it says after the second or third rally back and drop is when people on Wall Street start jumping out of windows, which is pretty intense. They were fooled with each false recovery. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think we've just seen is a false recovery. Just to be clear, the thing that happened in the 30s, I don't think that means that's exactly how it's going to go or anything like that. I don't think we know that. But I do think that this looks a lot like a false recovery to me. So what percentage of your stocks did you sell and what did you do with the money? So, Evelyn, I I don't know the exact percentages, but basically what we did was we sold off a lot of stuff in our, you know, most of this is in our Roth IRA. Like, I'm a huge fan of the Roth IRA. So we both have Roth IRAs. And we had a good amount, like kind of invested in the stock market as a whole in certain stocks. And we sold off most of it. I would say probably 80% or so. We hung on to a couple stocks, a couple things that I thought might have some potential to kind of ride the storm really well. One of those being Amazon, honestly. And Amazon has actually done really well in the last month or two. That was one that I think... That's because nobody wants to go anywhere. They're like, I'll just order it. Yeah. And Amazon has, love them or hate them, they've risen to this occasion pretty well. Mm. You know, not flawlessly, but... And they've hired so many people, which has really helped. Hired 175,000 people like in like a month during this thing. Anyway. Yeah. So they were one. I think there was a, a couple gold funds that we were kind of invested in that I think I wanted to hang on to. I don't remember exactly what, but we got rid of probably 80% of our different investments. And so what we're doing with the money now, it's just sitting in cash. And I don't want to, like, I'm not a proponent of timing the market. And that's kind of my little bit of a beef with this chapter a little bit. But at the same time, the reason I did this, I talked about this on another video, you can look it up on our channel, is just that I'm becoming more and more confident that I think something's going to happen sooner rather than later. And I'm confident enough that I'm willing to lose out on the gains, the potential gains if I'm wrong. That's kind of where I am with it. Do we think this is going to come before or after the election? Oh, I don't know. That'll be interesting. Oh, it'll be really And insane. if you want, you can go down all kinds of fun conspiracy theories about, well, I won't even say any. You can look them up on the internet. <laughs> Don't look them up. Just do yourself a favor. Leave it alone. Okay. So can you enlighten me? What is he talking about is based on long past history time, like depression time or with the recent times, like from 2008 onwards? I mean, the things in my lifetime that I remember, I remember kind of the dot-com blow up that we had. I remember the 9-11 thing a little bit. And then 2008 was a big one with a, you know, housing bubble kind of burst. during Y2K? I mean, that was sure. like right in between 9-11 and, and the dot-com dot thing. Yeah. Dot com, yeah, I think the dot-com thing was like late 90s. There might have been something with Y2K, but as soon as it was January 1st and everything was working, it's like, all right, we're good. <laughs> you guys remember Y2K? That was just over and it's over. Does anybody remember that? I'm the whole sure world's going to blow up. All the computers are going to blow up. So, yeah, he's looking at a longer timeline. Yeah, he is. And I think that makes a lot of sense because it's, I think we're short-sighted if we just look at the last 10, 15, 20 years. I think right. it's a lot. I love looking at things from a much longer perspective. Like, because even if you look at the history of America, like we are just such a blessed and prosperous nation and there's never been anything like this in the history of the world At the same time, like kings and kingdoms come and go, like none of them ever last forever. I think as an American living in my bubble, it's really easy for me to just think, yeah, this is the way it's always going to be. And I'm not like at all trying to be a doom and gloomer. Well, Rome. But yeah, it's like, 
you know, Rome, I think, was the second greatest civilization of all time. And and they got fat and lazy, just like so many of us in America have gotten, just metaphorically fat and lazy, not actually. But, but anyway, you get the idea. I just prefer to have a longer timeline and to see what's happened in the history of the world. There's this quote, I don't know who said it, but those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's a lot of benefit in studying what has happened because as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, you know? Yeah. It might look a little bit different, might be polished different or something, but Mm -hmm. I just read this article the other day. Tons and tons of millennials are investing right now because as soon as the market went down a little bit, they were all, you know, and I'm a millennial, trying to do the smart thing to, oh, the market's down. Let's go buy a whole bunch. But there's a whole bunch of people, millions and millions of new investors who don't know what they're doing buying stocks in which again that's not that bad of a thing because all you can lose is the amount that you invest okay but i just read this article about this young millennial investor young 20 something who actually got a big amount of margin from his um, brokerage firm so basically borrowed i think tens and tens of thousands of dollars and then i think he shorted a whole bunch of stuff and ended up sitting with like a $750,000 like negative balance or something like that. And he killed himself. It's just not something to play with if you don't know what you're doing. And I, I'm just not really going to go down that path. So the big short was about that, right? No, not about shorting stocks. Oh, it wasn't. That's an interesting movie to watch for other reasons. But I mean, but anyway, the point is, is I just wouldn't. It's not a biblical movie. Let's just say that. Oh, yeah. It's definitely not a clean movie. You know, the safe way to invest or one of the safest ways to invest is to invest in an index fund of some form where you're naturally diversified. So an index fund, for anybody who doesn't know, is like the S&P 500. So when you buy an index fund in that, you are buying a small percentage of all those companies. And so if the whole market goes up, you get to go up with it. If the whole market comes down, you go down with it. But versus an individual stock, if you invest in that, if that company goes under, you just lost all your money. Whereas even in a really bad depression, you know, we're talking maybe 40, 50% drop and not 100%, you know. So it's just a safer way to do things. But there's tons and tons of different things you can invest in nowadays. And uh, just do your homework. Be wise. Lisa says... Not including our car. We have about 10000 in debt. Do I work on getting rid of that debt before I start contributing to an IRA? Yeah. That's what I would do in this situation. But I think the other question is, what is your kind of emergency fund set up like? And that's where I would be focusing first. The emergency Start building fund. the emergency fund. Start building savings in a high interest checking account, which isn't going to pay you tons of money, but it's better than or a high interest savings account. Yeah, better just so you can get in something. And once you get that big enough, then you can start adding to the debt and trying to reduce that a little bit. But Number one priority, I think, is building savings. Number two, paying down debt. Number three would be kind of focusing on building the IRA, you know, and that's not to be confused. I was talking in a video not too long ago about investing versus paying off debt. And should you wait until you pay off all your debt to invest? And generally, my answer is no. Like, I think it's important to start investing early just so you can start learning. But you don't need to invest a lot to do that. And so like my first investment was like $100 into like a dividend um, reinvestment program at a utility or local utility when I live in St. Louis. And 
that was really fun. $100, it wasn't like tons of money, but it was enough for me to feel it if I lost that money. And that helps you learn, you know, so that's a different thing. But point is, is that I would focus on savings, then paying down debt, and then focus on building that Roth IRA Mm -hmm. in our current situation right now. There you go. There you have it. I think that's all for tonight. Appreciate you guys. We should end this on a high note, on a happy note. Yeah. Oh, well, high note is that, yeah, and we should always say this. It's a little doom and gloom. It does feel a little doom and gloom. But here's the thing, and this is what I always come back to. I'm annoyed that I haven't said this yet, but God is in control. Mm -hmm. God is in control. We know the end of the story, and that's a really good place to be mm-hmm. when you know that you're walking in step with the Lord and even in the midst of all the craziness that God's on the throne. He's not surprised by anything that's going on and that we can tap into his wisdom to ride the things out yeah. as best as we can. And then even when we mess up, he's still going to provide for us. So mm-hmm. that's a better note to end on. Yes. How about that? Amen. <laughs> all right. So all right. with that, we'll wrap this thing up and uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. All right. Good night. Good night.